Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. I want to jump into what we're actually here for. Surprisingly enough, we're not here to hear a bunch of announcements. We are here to hear the word of the Lord, and we are on part five of the book of Romans. Usually, guys, I will break up these teachings with other teachings, and we'll do like a a Bible verse by verse every other week. But I got to be honest, I've been loving the book of Romans so much. I've been enjoying doing this so much that I'm going to just go I'm going straight. So we're on part five. We've been doing this five weeks in a row. This is the book of Romans, New King James Version. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Rome, and And again, I've said this every single week, it's recognized as one of the most influential documents in scripture because it goes over the whole counsel of God, which you've seen. It's really, really amazing. It presents all of God's counsel in one book. I mean, it's incredible what we've been seeing, what we've been doing. If you don't know, the other four parts are on my YouTube channel, on the playlist. So if you need to catch up, you can, but I I will recap you a little bit on chapters seven and eight. So last week, seven and eight, we'll go over chapter seven. He starts out by talking about how a widow is no longer bound to her husband if her husband dies. Neither are we bound to the law because in Christ's death, we died to the law. So it was at the cross when Christ died, we died to the law, we've been separated from it, and we're no longer bound to that law that we used to have to live by. The old nature, Paul talks about in Romans 7, 4 through 6, is stimulated by the law and it produces fruit to death. The new nature is stimulated by the Holy Spirit and produces good fruit. You might say, Isaiah, how could the law stimulate sinful behavior? It's the same way if you have a massive flower bed and you put a sign out in front of your flower bed saying, do not pick the flowers and people walk by. Guess what people are going to want to do? Pick the flowers. Why? Because the sign says not to. Human nature is we want to do what we're not... not supposed to do and you know this if you have a kid the moment you tell your kid don't yell don't do this don't grab that that's the moment they do it that's human nature is to go against the rules set before us it's that rebellious nature that paul went on and on talking about but that's why the law stimulates sinful nature the law although does that it is holy it is righteous it is good and it shows our sin But remember, the law cannot save us. I know it sounds maybe like a broken record here, the law over and over again, but that's a lot what the book of Romans is about. The law has no saving power. It is only when we put our faith in Jesus that our righteousness goes from his account is credited to our account. Okay, so sin uses the law to produce death in us. That's what sin does. So the law is not bad. The law reveals our sin and and sin uses the law to produce sin in us. This is all what Paul talked about in Romans 7. Paul talked about his battle or confusion with the fact that he wanted to do what was good, but he kept doing what he didn't want to do. And I know so many of us could relate in the chat where we go, I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. I want to serve God, Isaiah. I want to pray. I want to read, but there's something in me. Paul calls it that flesh, that sinful man, the sin living in him lurking that keeps, he's saying, making him do what he doesn't want to do. And then he goes on to talk about if you obey sin, you're a slave to sin. If you obey God, you're a slave to God. Chapter 8, he talks about Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there's no more condemnation for them that are in Christ. He also talks about how the Holy Spirit will pray through us and pray for us in our weakness. And then he ends chapter 8 with suffering being a real part of the Christian life. Suffering is real. We are not exempt from suffering, but here's the beauty. As Christians, this is such good news tonight. There's purpose in your suffering. Before you're a Christian, there's no purpose in your suffering. When you become a Christian, God uses your suffering to produce character in you. So now we're going to go into chapter 9. 
chapters 1 through 8, Paul explained the details of the new covenant. Remember, the new covenant was different from the old covenant. The old covenant, which came through Moses, said God would reward Israel if Israel obeyed God, but God would punish them if God disobeyed. We know Israel failed their part of the deal and disobeyed God. The new covenant, Paul explains, God imputes righteousness and parts righteousness onto us when we believe in Christ. Doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. God takes Christ's righteousness and gives it to us. It's credited to our account. We are not righteous before God. Let me make that clear. None of us are righteous. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. No matter how much you think, oh, if I pray, if I read, if I do this, all these law or traditions that we do and do and do, it doesn't make us righteous. Righteousness comes from putting our faith in Jesus. It is by faith. And Paul goes into the Old Testament and says, all these people in the Old Testament were righteous because of their faith. It wasn't because they were circumcised or obeyed the law. So the Jews might have made the accusation that God was being unfair by changing his mind and being inconsistent by now saying, you no longer have to live by the law. That would be the accusation. Now the Gentiles can be saved too. But Paul's going to address the accusations in chapters 9 through 11. They really all go together hand in hand. We'll probably go through 9 and 10 because, again, I want to spend some time praying at the end of this as well. But I want you to realize that Paul's going to point out that God has not been inconsistent, but God has always imparted righteousness based on the basis of faith. So imagine God says, and I'm going to try to explain some really complicated principles very simply tonight, so stay with me. Imagine God says you have to live by the law all these years. The law is the standard. There's no way around it. And the Jews are solid living by this. They're convicted by this. They're passionate about this. They've given their lives to obeying the law and it's four or 500 plus requirements. And then God says, you no longer are bound by that law, but now there's grace, there's forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit's going to give you power to do what the law could never do. People are going to say, well, that's not fair. How is God going to do that and change his mind? And we're going to talk about divine election and the fact that God can do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't need to get your permission. He doesn't need to get your approval. God is sovereign, meaning he can deal with people how he chooses. This is something that American Christians need to get their head around. God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need to ask you before he uses somebody. He doesn't need to ask you before he heals somebody. He doesn't need to ask you before he delivers somebody. You're not God's spiritual guinea pig. Just because you have not experienced it doesn't mean it's not real. And what religion loves to do is say, if we've never experienced it, it must not be God. If we've never encountered speaking in tongues, it must not be God. If we've never cast out a demon, deliverance must not be real. If we've never performed a miracle, miracles must not be for today. But the, the problem is you're not God and God can do what he wants. That's the sovereignty of God is God can deal with people how he chooses. And who are we to tell God? I mean, the nerve to tell God how to do what he only he can do or how to handle things. Friend, you can't even get your own life together, let alone thinking you can tell God what he should be doing. You can't even get your own act together with your job and your family and your decisions and your finances, let alone trying to tell God how to be God. So religion is so arrogant and so proud to think it can tell God what to do. This is what we're going to be going over tonight is the sovereignty of God, divine election, and the fact that God is God. And there will be things, I'm telling you right now, this will set you free that you're not going to understand. There will be things that God does that make absolutely no sense to you, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to make sense. You need to let go of your own ambition, your own intellect, your own rationale, however you want to say it, your own idea of the way your life should be. Because you, I know, the, I know you have a plan for you, and you go, this is how my life should be. God, you should be doing this. And God says, 
I'm the potter, which Paul's going to talk about later. You're the clay. So stop telling me how I should be functioning and doing your life. If you're serving God right now, this is going to bring somebody peace. If you're worshiping and praying and you're seeking God and you're in this live, you're in this live proving you're hungry for the word of God. This is not a flashy title. This is not something where it's like, oh, it's going to attract tons of viewers. This is straight up verse by verse Bible. And you're here seeking God. You're fasting. You're praying. You're going, God, I want to serve you. Then God is going to order your steps. Stop stressing out about, I don't know if I'm in the will of God. I don't know if I'm going where I need to go. And you're always stressed about God. Is this your will? Is this your will? Is this your will? God says, I'll order your steps as long as you serve me and you live righteous and you live holy and you, and you keep chasing me. You don't have to live so stressed out about, oh, this, this, this. God is ordaining your life. God is sovereign and God's going to accomplish his will. And you need to put the trust in the potter. Too much of your trust has gone into the clay and gone into yourself. And tonight, and listen, friend, I am preaching, not just prophetically starting out here, but I'm preaching to myself. I have to give it to God and say, God, you are molding. You're doing something. I don't know all the times what it is. There's times where I'm trying to take matters into my own hands and I'm worried about this or that or these vain carnal things. And God says, I'm shaping you. I'm molding you. I'm doing the work. I'm ordaining your steps. I am sovereign and I'm going to deal with you how I need you and how I want to. And my ways are not your ways. And friend, God's ways are infinitely better. If you think about the best way to do something with the smartest person in the world, God's ways are a thousand times better. So don't be stressed out. If you feel like right now things feel broken or out of order or out of alignment, get your life in order in the best way that you can. Seek the Lord and God is going to have his way. Okay, so let's go into this. There's your little 10 minute prophetic word for you. Romans 9, 1 through 4. And we're going verse by verse, New King James. I'm going to try to make it as best as understanding as I can, as easy, simple as I can. That's the goal, okay? So if you're looking for a Greek breakdown, a Hebrew breakdown, and I'm going to put all the verses on screen and make it super complicated for you, that's not what I'm going to do. My goal is to make it understandable the way I believe the Bible wants it to be, okay? You shouldn't need a Greek uh, interpretation to be able to understand what the Bible plainly tells us to understand. The Bible works in any language. So we're going to go over this, and I'm going to try to break it down, and I'm going to help by the help of the Holy Spirit, not by my strength, but His, make some of this stuff understandable where you can go, oh, I never understood what that verse meant or I've read that a thousand times and now it makes sense. Romans 9. So get your Bible out. It's fun. Go along with me with your friends, your family. It'll be a good time. Romans 9, 1 through 4. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. This is the Apostle Paul saying this, okay? My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So Paul's about to say something that he knows his readers is so outlandish that his readers are not going to believe him. And so he has to preface it by saying, I'm speaking the truth. And not only am I speaking the truth, but I'm speaking the truth in Christ. And then he says, I'm not lying, and my conscience confirms it, but not only does my conscience confirm I'm not lying, like I can stand with a clear conscience before God saying this, making this statement. Again, he's going to make this outlandish statement that I don't think any of us, at least I know I can't, would be able to make. And Paul says, before I do that, this is in the Holy Spirit. So I am without a shadow of a doubt, what I'm about to say, Paul says, is the absolute truth. And he's making sure his readers really, 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 really believe what he's about to say. And then he makes this probably one of the most sobering, remarkable statements in all of scripture, especially to me by the apostle Paul. He makes this statement, and this is a statement. 
I will take on the condemnation on myself to save my fellow Jews who reject Christ. Paul knew Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophetic messages from the Old Testament prophets. And he goes, I would do anything for my fellow Jews to believe this message. And I, I would go so far to, to do this for them that I would be willing to go to hell over them going to heaven, over them receiving the Messiah instead of rejecting him. When we think about the fact that hell is completely absent of God, it's full of torture and pain forever. Think about the compassion that the apostle Paul had to say, I know how bad hell is. I know what Jesus said about it. I know I'm going to be separated, alienated from God for all of eternity. I'll never experience God for, in, for all of eternity. And I'm so compassionate. I will go to hell if it means saving my friends or family. If it means, if it means my friends and family do not go to hell, I'll go. We don't even have, friend, we don't even have enough compassion to simply share our faith, which costs us nothing. Yet Paul says, God, I will take on the condemnation and go to hell on their behalf if it means saving them. I will be 100% honest with you guys as I am in my broadcast and say, I couldn't do that. Knowing about hell, hearing experiences from guys like Bill Wees, reading the Bible and seeing how horrible hell is for all of eternity, a trillion years go by in hell and you're just getting started with the torment and the torture. I, I'm just being honest before God. I don't know about you. I could not say, God, I will go to hell if it means my friends and family can go to heaven. I mean, this is such a statement Paul's making. He says, and I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying before God. I would take on the condemnation. Not many of us would say that. In fact, not many of us even weep over the loss. Not many of us even step out and reach someone who's headed to hell. And the agony Paul's saying is, you know, you can't force someone to serve Christ and put their faith in him. You can't make someone saved. Now, is God going to take Paul up on the offer? No, because God is not going to force himself on anybody. So God, of course, would not take Paul or you or me up on that offer. Our job as Christians is to plant the seed and pray, God, let that seed grow. It's share the faith, explain the gospel message to them. But there is a real level of agony when you think about how terrible hell is. And the fact is many of our friends and family are heading there because they've chosen to reject God. And God says, let that move you with compassion. Let there be something in you tonight to say, man, I don't have to give up my place in heaven, but I can preach the gospel message to them. I can see them get saved. I can see them get delivered. I can see them get healed by opening up my mouth. So I don't have to be in the discomfort of going to hell for them, but I could be in the discomfort of, yeah, will it be an uncomfortable phone call? Probably. Will it be me stepping over the chicken line to share my faith with somebody? Yes, but you know what? It's gonna be worth it to see my friends, excuse me, and my family saved. What will it take for you to get so bold and to start saying, I'm, I wanna see them get saved, that I'm willing to step outside my comfort zone. I wanna see them get delivered, that I'm willing to step out. You don't have to be as drastic as Paul was saying, I'm telling the truth, I would take on the condemnation. I'm not lying about it. Because if I, listen, if I said right now, I will go to hell so that you can be saved if that's what it took, you would be like, Isaiah, come on. No, you wouldn't, you're lying. There's no way you do that. So Paul goes, I'm before God, I'm honest about that, Paul says. I'm not saying that, but Paul says, that's how compassionate he was for the Jewish people who, remember, rejected the Messiah. This is Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters that have rejected the Messiah. And Paul is going to, for the next couple chapters, plead with them going, guys, how has Israel rejected God and God's very own people? And now God's taking these Gentiles and grafting them into the family because they've rejected God. Think about, let that sober you up tonight to go, man, 
I got to start sharing my faith with somebody. I got to start opening my mouth. I got to step out of my comfort zone. I got to I got to make a TikTok and start preaching on there. I got to message people on Instagram. I got to message people on Facebook. I got to call those family members. I mean, really, I'm preaching to myself as well. We got to get to that place where there's that holy desperation. If Paul can say that, then how much more can we share our faith when it's comfortable for us? And really, a lot of us watching right now, let's be honest, we're not we're not uh we're not being persecuted. We're not we're not living this hard life where we have to hide underground and the Bibles are getting, you know, taken from us and we're getting arrested. None of that. But man, our friends, our family, our cousins, our aunts, our uncles, our coworkers, we need to reach them with the gospel. Romans 9, 4 through 5. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenant. So he's talking about God's chosen people, the Jews. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promise of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God amen so in the midst of his grief in the midst of Paul's reflection Paul reviews Israel's God-given blessings he goes I'm going to tell you all the blessings Israel has been giving and these blessings were intended to support and to affirm the Jewish people God's chosen people the Israelites that Paul is pleading with so he lists seven spiritual privileges that belonged to the Jewish people. Number one, he says they were adopted as sons and Moses was to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That's Exodus 4.22. So God calls Israel his son and his firstborn. That's again, Exodus 4.22. Number two, they saw the divine glory of God. The Israelites experienced the presence of God, like the real presence of God. Number three, they were given covenants. Remember, God entered into covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David. Number four, they received the law. God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai. Number five, they had temple worship. The temple was ordained and pleasing to God as a place of worship, a place of praise, a place of fellowship, a place of sacrifice. Number six, they had promises, especially the promise of the Messiah. The promise of the Messiah was to the Jewish people. It was to the Israelites. It was to God's chosen. And the Messiah came and they rejected the Messiah. And so God says, okay, you were invited to the wedding banquet. You didn't want to come. You were too busy for me. You rejected me because all your rules and laws and regulations. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to choose those that weren't intended, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, those that were never invited, and they're going to be the ones that come to the wedding banquet. These are going to be those that are lowly to the world. So they were originally given the promise, the promise of the Messiah, and they had hundreds of promises in their writings. Hundreds of times the Bible would promise this, and they missed it. Number seven, they had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the prophets were all given to the nation of Israel. God gave the prophets to Israel as a gift saying, I'm going to use them to speak to you and to plea with you and to call you back to me and to reconcile. If you read the whole New Old Testament, what is God constantly saying to the prophets? Come back to me, Israel. Come back to me, Israel. You've forgotten your first love. You've walked away from me. Come back to me. And so these are the seven blessings that Paul is going to tell them about this incredible heritage that were given. And in the end of it all, they rejected God when he came to the earth. It's like the kid that gets this heritage, this inheritance of a, a million dollars and the kid goes and squanders his inheritance and blows it on just useless things and wastes it and ends up poor. This is what Israel did. They squandered their inheritance. They rejected the Messiah when he came and Paul is pleading with them to come back to God. We see in the book of Acts, the Jews had a really hard time accepting that God was inviting Gentiles into 
the family of God. Paul had to keep saying, no, they don't, you don't have to be circumcised. I know you guys have been taught that, but God is now accepting them. And then Peter comes and goes, no, guys, listen, the Holy Spirit fell. I saw the Holy Spirit. I saw the Holy Spirit come on them and accept them and invite them in. Uh, this is real. Like God has accepted the Gentiles into the family. And so the Jews had a really hard time understanding and accepting that God accepted the Gentiles, the Samaritans, and now anybody, doesn't matter color, doesn't matter race, ethnicity, background, um, political status, financial status, God accepts all people. And so this is what Paul is going to be dealing with. And we know, we know this, religious people to this day have a hard time accepting what God is doing and accepting that God can use certain people. Religious people think, well, you have to look a certain way, be a certain way, act a certain way. And God says, no, I'm accepting. Romans 9 six through seven, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. So Paul is saying this, it's not that God has failed. It's that God's chosen people rejected him and disobeyed him. So if God says, these are my chosen people that will serve me and all this, and I've given them all these, God says, I've given them all these blessings. And then they don't, they turn from and reject God. Paul says, it's not that God has failed. It's not God's fault. It's that they've chosen to disobey him and reject him. And when Paul says they are not all Israel who are of Israel, he's saying just because you're born a Jew doesn't make you a legitimate child of God. There is many Jews even right now who reject Jesus as the Messiah. There's many Orthodox Jews. And Paul says you're not considered God's chosen children just because you're born a Jew doesn't make you a legitimate child of God. In fact, in Romans 2.28, Paul says he's not a Jew outwardly, but he's a Jew inwardly. So again, what are you saying, Paul? It's a spiritual thing. It's not circumcision physically. It's circumcision of the heart. And when you are born again, which coincidentally my shirt says born again, praise the Lord, you are born again, a legitimate child of God. So when you're born a Jew today, that does not make you a legitimate child of God. What makes you a legitimate child of God is that you're born again, that you're new in a spiritual sense. As he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Remember, John the Baptist said, don't say you're fine because you're children of Abraham. Surely God can take these rocks and turn them into children of Abraham. So there's no being born into luxury. He goes, show that you've repented by the way that you live. Don't say, oh, I was born a Jew. I was born in Israel. Or don't say I'm special because I was born into this spiritual family or whatever he goes no you could be of israel and not of israel this is a spiritual reality now you must be born again into romans 9 7 through 9 but in isaac your seed shall be called that is those who are the children of the flesh these are not the children of god but the children of the promise are counted as the seed for this is the word of promise at this time i will come and sarah shall have a son again i know some of this sounds complicated you're going what does that even mean paul's primary evidence of god's word to sarah he quotes at this time i will come and sarah shall have a son so if you don't know what that means god promised abraham and sarah that even though they were well beyond childbearing age, they would have a son born of promise. God promised them. He said, look, it's impossible for you to have a son, but I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to give you the son. This is going to be the son of promise. And this is going to bless all people. Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Sarah ends up getting pre pregnant and Isaac, the son of promise was born. So to be the child of promise, again, like I said, now you must be born again. Anyone can be a part now of God's chosen family by being born again. 
Nobody chooses what family they're born into, but you can choose to be born again. And when you are born again, you're born in the family of God, you become royalty. So before there was a child of promise, God says, this is the child of promise born into, you're gonna bless and this. Now God says, by my spirit, Whoever wants to be born again can turn to me, put their faith in me, be born again, and be born into the family of God. Just like you were not, you didn't choose where you were born. None of us get to choose, oh, I'm going to be born in California. I'm going to be born in Texas. But we get to choose if we're going to serve God and we're going to be born again. And this goes back to when he says, listen, if Christ died for you while his enemy, imagine how much more he'll do for you now. Think about this. Your father is the king of the kingdom. You were born in the family of God. You are royalty and your dad owns the kingdom. Your father is God. Like in a real tangible spiritual sense, you don't have to be this chosen Israelite or chosen Jew any longer like the Old Testament was. You are now chosen when you choose God. Many are called, few are chosen. That verse literally means everybody gets the call, but very few people respond to the call. That's the context of the verse. Everybody gets invited. Those that choose not to come, don't come and then those that get choose to come they become chosen so you get to choose tonight this is for me god has chosen me for such a time as this i'm not going to live my life squandering my inheritance acting like god didn't choose me acting like i'm not special i'm some grasshopper you've been chosen of god today is the day now's the time of salvation to say god i'm going to serve you i'm going to worship you i'm going to praise you that you are my real father in a very spiritual but real sense and god you're the king of the kingdom my father owns all of it so i'm not worried he feeds the birds how much more the bible says is he going to feed you if you being evil know how to give good gifts how much more is your heavenly father going to give the holy spirit to them that ask he's good 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 and he wants to give this to you romans 9 10 through 13 and not only this, so he talks about Sarah and the promise. He goes, not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Okay, again, sounds complicated. I'm going to explain it all. Don't worry. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay, so what God is saying is this. He goes into Abraham and Sarah to the family of the son of promise. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, give birth to twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Paul's responding to the possible objection that Ishmael was not Abraham's child. And therefore, Paul's argument that God elects certain people and not others didn't hold any water. So here's what, here's what Paul is saying. He's explaining it. Jacob and Esau had the same father. Okay, God chose Jacob, not Esau. That's why it says... They weren't even born yet when God chose them. No one did good. No one did evil. It wasn't like Esau did bad and God said, okay, you're bad. I'm not choosing you. I choose Jacob. But God elected. So election might stand. God elected to choose Jacob, not Esau. And here's the point God made a distinction between Jacob and Esau before they were born. So before they're born, God makes this distinction. This was a sovereign decision. The boy's characters had not been shaped. They had not performed no deeds for the basis of evaluation. They are, they are equally the same, but God says, I'm choosing Jacob, not Esau. Okay, so they're the same. Before they even arrive, I'm choosing Jacob. God says, not Esau, before they arrive. And to add to that, God said the older brother is going to serve the younger brother, which is something contrary to the custom of the day. But God is saying this, this is election i get to choose i'm god so who are you to say why would you hate esau why would you choose jacob why would god do this 
because God can do whatever God wants to do. God chooses whom he's going to elect or whom he's going to use and who he's not going to use. And I'm going to show you this, okay? One commentator said this, this verse does not mean God condemned Esau before birth. Because some of you right now are saying, well, why would God even create Esau if Esau has been condemned before birth? That's not what it's saying. It says, this does not mean God condemned Esau before birth. In its Old Testament context, when it said Esau I hated, it means that God decisively rejected Esau's claim to the covenant promise, which would be his as older son. So his older son Esau would get the covenant promise, but God rejected that and said, no, Jacob's going to get the promise. That's why it says Esau I hated. That's the Old Testament context. So it wasn't that God says, I'm going to create you so that I can reject you because Esau actually was blessed and God poured out many blessings on Esau, but it was, I've chosen Jacob and I can do this because again, I'm God. And I know as we talk about this, we go, this doesn't, if you have no volume, just refresh and I don't even know why I say that because if you have no volume, you didn't hear me say that. But anyways, just refresh if you're having issues. Someone type refresh the stream if you have issues in the chat for whoever's saying there's no volume. It's not that you say, well, God, how could God do that? It's not fair. I really want you to remove fair out of your vocabulary because God can do whatever he wants. So you might say, well, that isn't fair. Where in the Bible does it say God has to play fair? It's like the, it's like the parable Jesus gives where I'm going to totally butcher this, but where the servant goes, I worked all day long and I go, and I'm going to paraphrase and I only got $10 and this guy worked all worked for five minutes and got $10 and the, the servant goes, that's not fair. And the answer is what, what, why does God have to be fair? What are you talking about fair? Like God has to give you more than so-and-so or less than so-and-so or uh, why does Isaiah deserve this? I've been toiling for many more years or I've been doing it for 30 years and he's only been doing it for 10 years or what? God says fair, I am God. And this is what, this is really the emphasis I wanna make tonight on all of this divine election and God choosing the sovereignty of God is that God can do what he wants. That's the bottom line. And when you get this revelation, you're not going to struggle so much about why is this not fair? Why is worry about there's, there's this saying, I think somebody actually sent me a t-shirt where it said, if my neighbor is being blessed, I know it's super cheesy, but it's okay. If my neighbor is being blessed, it must mean God's in the neighborhood. The, the point is, why are we so hateful? Why are we so jealous? Like, oh, so-and-so has more of this than me, or so-and-so has more that than me, or so-and-so has more subscribers or viewers or a bigger church. It's like, dude, there's so many, there's, there's enough for all of us to eat. There's so much people to reach. The fact that I'm being blessed or that so-and-so is being blessed doesn't mean God doesn't love you or that God's not sovereign. It just means God's blessing them. So we have to remove the jealousy out of our heart and stop looking at everybody else and coveting our brother's possessions, coveting our brother's subscribers. Come on, coveting how many views they have or people in their church or how big their business is. There's plenty enough blessing, trust me, to go around. Romans 9, 14 through 15. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? This is what Paul's saying. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I, and this is important right here, okay? I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. This is what God said to Moses. In other words, is God wrong for choosing Jacob over Esau? No, no. Why? Because God says, I can do what I want. I'll show mercy on whoever I want. Here, here, here Paul is anticipating an objection from the Romans, which is much like what we'd hear today. Um, they may feel... The principle of election makes God unjust or unfair. How can God choose certain people before they're even born? It's not fair, but no matter how much, and, and here's the thing that's crazy, no matter how much blessing or grace we've experienced, 
we always attack God's character saying, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair, I want more, why do they get that? But does God not have the right to be God? God reserves the right. You know, there's that sign when you go to the store that says we reserve the right to refuse service to anybody. That basically means they can tell you, no, no, we're not serving you at the restaurant or the place. God says, I reserve the right to be God. So I don't, I don't have to save anybody. I don't have to save anybody, but I reserve the right to be God. I can do what I want to do. You are not God. So this is where we have to keep this in mind. God, you are far above me. You're infinitely greater. And I need to remove this thing of, well, hell doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't have to make sense to you. Well, heaven doesn't make sense to me. Well, deliverance doesn't make sense to me. Well, why would God do this? It doesn't make sense. The divine election, none of it has to make sense. You're, you are an ant compared to God. Like you see an ant, when you see an ant, you don't think, oh, that ant is as smart as me or that ant, you know, can make decisions. No, it's an ant. And in comparison, I, I hate to say it, but in comparison to God, you are an ant. Your brain is so little and finite and limited in all of its intricacies and complexities and the power your brain has compared to God. God has the right to be God. Now, with that being said, it's not wrong to try and understand these deep truths, but we need to be humble and respectful to God and not try to point our finger at him. And we should also remember that God did not have to save anybody. There's nowhere in the Bible, this may be news to you tonight, there's nowhere in the Bible where God had to save anybody. We all deserve death. And in, in God's great mercy, he decides to save us. So your salvation is not automatic. There's no promise of like, you. God guarantees I'm saving everybody. It's in my world, I have to do it. No, God chose to send his son by choice and God decided and chose to save us. But he didn't have to, it was by his own free will. Now Paul in his, in his discussion, takes his readers back to Exodus 33, where Moses and God had a tent meeting. And it was during this conversation where God says to Moses, that's Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So in other words, God doesn't need our permission. He's God and we're not. We have to get to a place where we go, okay, God, if you don't bless me, I'm okay with that. If you never do another miracle, I'm okay with that. Come on, where... Y'all are quiet tonight. If you don't deliver me, I'm okay with that. If you don't heal me, I'm okay with that. If you never say another word to me, I'm okay with that. If you go bless somebody else, I'm okay with that. If I pray for five years to get the certain job and the guy says, man, I've been praying for a week and I got the job, I'm okay with that. I gotta get out of this, give me, give me, give me. It's about me mentality. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about God being glorified in the earth. And so if we live with that, God will bless us. If we live with this mentality that you're the master, not me, get out of control. Get out. Stop trying to be in control. I know it's hard to, but you'll be blessed. Because remember, God is not required to. God does not owe us anything. In fact, we deserve death. That's really what God owes us. Eternal separation in hell, death. But instead, God by grace gives us mercy. And that's enough for me. I've, I've said that before. Listen, if you throw me in the fire, I'll still serve you. If I get no blessing, I'll still serve you. If everything falls apart, I'll still serve you. If I'm homeless, I'll still serve you. If I have nothing, I'll still serve you. If everybody turns their back, I'll serve you. No matter what, if my whole family dies, God forbid any of that would happen. Like Job, what happened with Job? I'm still going to serve you, God. When your wife says, curse God, Job's wife says, curse God. Job says, I will not curse the Lord. Naked I came in, naked I leave. You got to get to that place because then when you lose things, you're not attached to those things that you lose. Okay, Romans 9, 16 through 18. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, 
but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and, and whom he wills, he hardens. And now this is a scripture that's been debated forever about how is God going to harden Moses' uh, Pharaoh's heart and it's not fair. So for an example of God's sovereign will, Paul takes readers to Pharaoh in Egypt. God was merciful to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's pride kept him from seeing the glory of God and, it, and, and God in his servant Moses. So Pharaoh is introduced as the type of person, Jew or Gentile, who resists God. Okay, so Pharaoh is an archetype of somebody who resists God. He's here as a prefiguration of Israel. Okay, Israel resists God. So Paul's saying, look, just like the Jews, you guys are resisting God. Pharaoh resisted God, who in her disobedience shows opposition to the Messiah. So in this way, Pharaoh became a witness, an unbelieving witness, an unwilling witness, an ungrateful witness, but a witness, therefore, to saving power and personal intervention. Moses, Pharaoh witnessed God's saving power. God lifted up Pharaoh. But remember, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God's will is always, Romans 12, 2, good and acceptable and perfect. So always, 100% of the time, God's will is, according to Romans 12, good and acceptable and perfect. So let me say this. God did not change Pharaoh's nature or manipulate Pharaoh's will. God revealed himself to Pharaoh more and more and more through the judgments. And Pharaoh rejected God's self-revelation by rejecting God in his will. Okay. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But remember, God re lifted up Pharaoh, revealed himself to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh rejected God. And God used that hardening of the heart to accomplish his will. One commentator said this. Listen to what this commentator said. Revelatory hardening is when God reveals himself. Listen closely here. Revelatory hardening is when God reveals himself to a human and the human's reaction is to harden his or her heart toward God. An analogy for this is what the sun does to wax or clay. When wax is heated by the sun, it softens because of the nature of the wax. When clay is heated by the sun, it hardens because of the nature of the clay. In the same way, when God revealed more and more of himself to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart hardened because of Pharaoh's essential nature. After the final judgment, when Pharaoh began to pursue the Jews and enter the Red Sea, God hardened Pharaoh's heart again. This was called judicial hardening. Judicial hardening is when a person is already hard-hearted and God hardens her heart or his heart even more. Judicial hardening is a punishment for being totally committed to rebellion against God. In neither case did God cause Pharaoh to act against his essential nature. God permitted Pharaoh... Listen to this. God permitted Pharaoh to become Pharaoh or in essence raised him up because he knew full well, full well who he was and how he would behave. Pharaoh chose to rebel against God and God used his rebellion to accomplish his own purposes. That's exactly what we're talking about here. When we talk about divine election, when we talk about God hardening or choosing somebody for destruction, you go, well, why would God have somebody be born just to choose him to be destroyed? It's not God, it's divine nature. Our nature is rebellious to God. And when God shows his power and glory and we harden our heart, we saw this in Romans 1, God turns us over to a reprobate mind. And God uses even those that are rebellious for his divine purposes. So it wasn't that God said, okay, I want Pharaoh to hate me. I want Pharaoh to have a hard heart. I want to go against essential nature. I want to go against Pharaoh's free will. And I'm going to make Pharaoh 
go to hell and serve the enemy and harden his heart. No, God saw that Pharaoh rejected him with every chance he had and all the miracles. And God says, he's already hardened his heart. And there's that judicial hardening where now I'm going to harden his heart even more. So there's mess, much misconception here with divine election. I want to give you the definition of an article I read of divine election. Divine election is the idea that God does what he wants and what he does is true and right because God does it. It's foundational to our understanding of everything in scripture, including the doctrine of election. In a broad sense, election refers to the fact that God chooses or elects to do everything that he does in whatever way he sees fit. When he acts, he does so not so only because he willfully and independently chooses to act. According to his own nature, predetermined plan and good pleasure, he decides to do whatever he desires without pressure or constraint from an outside influence. So this is divine election, okay? God elects to do what he wants to do, he doesn't need outside influence. He doesn't need help with it. It's God's design, his predetermined plan. That's divine election. Okay, here's the misconception. And this is what I want to talk about here. That was the article of divine election. Here's what I want to say. One misconception is that because God has pre-knowledge of something, God causes that thing when in reality, God has given us free will and God will even use rebellion for his purposes. So it's not that God made us, makes people rebellious and designs them just to go to hell, it's that they've already hardened themselves toward God and God knows that before they were even born, okay? So for example, if I knew that tomorrow at three o'clock you were gonna get in a car accident, just because I know that at three o'clock tomorrow you're getting in a car accident, I have pre-knowledge, okay, because I'm all knowing, doesn't mean that I caused your car accident. Imagine getting in a rack and calling me saying, you got, you made me get in a car accident. I'm like, no, I didn't. Well, you knew I was gonna get in one. Okay, but I knew because I had pre-knowledge of it but I didn't make you get in the car accident. That's way. That's the way God's pre-knowledge is. God could say, okay, someone's gonna be born tomorrow at five o'clock or before you were in your mother's womb. God said, Jeremiah, I made you, I designed you, I designated you, I elected you to be a prophet. But Jeremiah still chose to be that prophet. God knew he was gonna be the prophet. God knew he was gonna say yes, but Jeremiah had to make the choice. I'm gonna serve God and be a prophet. So if, if somebody's born and they go to hell, God knows before they were even born that they were going to go to hell. Does that mean that God designed them? And I'm trying to make this simple. I'm sorry if I'm complicating it. Does that mean that God designed them and created them with the purpose of them going to hell? And the answer to that question is no. Okay, God does not design people, make them go to hell and predetermine them to go to hell. Again, we choose this, but God does of course know this. God doesn't choose it, but God knows it. And the Bible makes this clear. Let me show you this absolutely clear undeniable a lot of people believe and i won't go into who they are and what they are because it is a popular doctrine that god elects people designs people to to go to hell and only certain chosen people are special enough to go to heaven that is not the way it works here's what second peter 3 9 says the lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think no he's being patient for your sake now peter's talking about the coming of the lord okay the day of the lord when jesus comes back but i want you to see what he says here this is God's nature, okay? Capital H-E. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent, okay? So what is God's will and God's plan? It's right here in the New Testament. He being God, capital H, does not want anyone to be destroyed. This is Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit inspiring Peter to write this. God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So what is God's plan for humanity? What is God's will? Is God's will design people so they can go to hell? No. Although people are born and do go to hell, God says, my design and my will is everyone to repent. 
Is everyone going to repent? Of course not. Is there millions upon millions that go to hell? Of course there is. Because the Bible says difficult is the way that leads to heaven and most people go to hell. Yes, because of God? No, because people choose to reject and rebel and to serve their own will and ambition. And in, in turn, they reject God and go to where there is no God. Okay, so don't say, oh, I don't want God, F God, I hate God, I'm an atheist, and then get mad that God sends you to hell. I've told atheists this before. Why would you want to go to heaven? Heaven is where God is, and you hate God. You don't like God, so God goes where he's not, sends you where he's not, and that is hell, and you chose to do that. I hope I explained that in a very basic way. I know this is a very complex and he heavily debated scripture about hardening Harold's heart, heart and divine election, but... I think I made it pretty simple there. Romans 9, 19 through 21. I got to start moving because we're already 45 minutes in and we're still in Romans chapter 9. 19 through 21. You will say to, to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the living thing, th th pay attention to this. Will the living, will the thing formed say to who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and one for dishonor? The reality is this. We want the final word. This is the problem tonight we're having in this letter here. We want the final word. That's human nature. We want to be in control of our destiny. But Paul says, who are you to reply against God and say, why would God make that person born if that person is going to go to hell and break the law? He goes, does the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump, one is a vessel of honor, one is a vessel of dishonor. So from the same clump, one cup is perfect and one cup is all messed up and broken. That's what he's saying here. The accusation is, why does he still find fault if he's the one that made someone a certain way, okay? So let me make that clear. I know it sounds complicated. Why does God find fault in somebody if God made them that way? That's the accusation against God. The accusation, though, assumes that we are innocent to begin with and we're not. That's what you have to remember. If you're accusing God saying, why would you make somebody that way? You're accusing God of people are made perfect and people are not made perfect. We are born into sin. God never condemns innocent people. He condemns sinners and he's no under no obligation to save anybody. So remember, we are born vessels of dishonor. So he chooses who he, we choose who will serve and we don't blame God for being rebellious. We are rebellious in our own human nature. It's not God's fault. Adam chose to sin and now we are born with a sin nature. So to say, why would God make someone bad and somebody good is to say we're, any of us are good. Nobody's good. That accusation holds no water because we've all fallen short. None of us are good. And Paul goes, just as it's ridiculous for a lump of clay to talk back to a potter, it's that ridiculous for us to tell God how to do things. You would never make a, you know, a clay cup and the cup would start saying, why'd you make me this way? It's just so dumb to even think that would happen. And Paul says, that's what it's like for you to tell God how he should do what he's doing. Okay. Romans 9, excuse me. Excuse me. Romans 9, 22 through 24. To 24. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even as even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So important thing to remember, every human on the planet will glorify God, willingly or not, in heaven or in hell. Either people will glorify God as objects of mercy and glory, those that go to heaven, or they will glorify God as objects of wrath and power. I know this sounds hard to understand. Again, I said this in the beginning, he's God, not us. 
if somebody goes to hell or God judges somebody in the end times in the tribulation, that is bringing glory to God and it's because they become objects of wrath and power and God's power, his judgment. I know you're like, how does that make sense? That's what Paul's saying here. If somebody goes to heaven, receives Christ, they glorify God in the fact that they are objects of mercy and God's glory. So either way, everybody's going to bring glory to God, whether they are prepared for destruction or what the Bible calls vessels of wrath or they are vessels of mercy. Again, this is God. He can do what he wants to do. Okay, I want to read you what one commentator said here. The phrase prepared for destruction, which is found in Romans 9.22, we just read that, might imply that God makes up his mind to send people to hell even before he creates them, but this is not likely. The preparation to, to what unbelievers do despite what their conscience tells them, such people are preparing themselves for destruction. Paul points out the patience of God in that God tolerates the sin of wickedness for a time. He says he tolerates wickedness to make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy. He does this in two ways. One way is what he did to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was raised up, his heart was hardened, and his sin was accumulated so God would more fully display his wrath in judging him at the end. The second way he shows his glory is in delaying his wrath to give sinners a chance to repent. So again, the commentator here is saying when God says prepare for destruction, it's not that he's making up his mind, creating people, preparing them so that they are going to hell before they're even saved. It's that they are preparing themselves for destruction and God is being patient and God is showing glory even in that destruction. I know, I know, it sounds complicated here. Okay, Romans 9, 25 through 26. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. So with Christ's death and resurrection, God stands at the threshold of his kingdom, looks at the Gentiles, opens the door and says, come on in. You are outsiders. You are living where you shouldn't be living. You are not called. You are not accepted. You are not my beloved. But now I open the door and say, come on in. And Paul is quoting scripture to prove his point. Here he uses scripture to prove that Gentiles will be part of God's kingdom. And he quotes Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10. Both refer to Israel who fell from God's favor and was later restored. And here, here Paul is using the first quote to refer not to Israel, but to the Gentiles. Paul didn't only do this, but Peter also did this. This is Paul again saying, I'm welcoming them into my family. Okay. Romans 9.27 through 29. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, but because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath has left us a seed, he will become like Sodom and he will have been made like Gomorrah. The remnant idea goes back to Romans 2, when Paul explained the difference between those who had been circumcised outwardly and circumcised inwardly. So even in the midst of all these Jews, the remnant would be those that accepted Jesus. Now, not all the Jews rejected Jesus. Not every Pharisee and Sadducee rejected Jesus. Many of the Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, ended up getting saved. And in Acts, many more got saved. So he's saying there will be a remnant of God's chosen people. Yes, some of them will end up rejecting God and Messiah, but some of them will be saved. And that's what Paul refers to as the remnant. Okay, Romans 9, 30 through 33. This is the period at the end of Romans chapter 9. Here we go. You ready? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel 
pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling block as is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling block and a rock of offense and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Okay, here's the period to chapter nine. The period is this. Paul plays the beautiful broken record. We're going to start calling it that. The beautiful broken record is that righteousness is not attained by the law or by works, but by faith and grace. So he goes, the Gentiles didn't even have the law and they attained righteousness by faith. And the Jews who had the law didn't attain righteousness because they tried to do it by works. The law goes beyond our reach, but grace reaches down and empowers us to say no to sinful desires. Righteousness is not attained by the law. It's attained by grace. It's the beautiful broken record that you're like, Isaiah, you've said that a thousand times. I'm telling you, Paul keeps saying it over and over again because it's that important. Okay, let's go. Do you guys want to go in Romans 10? I know we've been live for an hour and six minutes. I think we can get it done in like probably 15 minutes. It's not a long, it's not a long chapter, but I think we should knock out Romans chapter 10. I'm going to be gone this week. I'll be back Friday, but type one in the chat if you'll stay don't log off. If you'll stay to Romans chapter 10, let's go into chapter 10. Type one. Let me see that spammed in the chat. All right. I think that's enough of you here. Romans 10, one through two. It's, it, come on, guys. It's Monday night, seven o'clock Pacific time on a Monday night. I mean, what do you got going right now? Romans 10, one through two. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He goes, that's my heart. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So remember, it was not long before Paul wrote his letters to the Romans that Paul was zealously seeking righteousness by the law. So Paul is writing saying, I've been where you've been. I've been where the Jews were. Okay, so they're zealously seeking God. At one time, Paul thought Jesus and his followers were traitors to Judaism because they didn't seek righteousness the same way he and the Pharisees did. So Paul was like, you guys are wrong. You're false. In fact, he was getting some of them killed because he, he was zealously seeking God, but he was doing it for the wrong reasons. So, you know, there's a special compassion when you've been in someone else's shoes and you're out of them and you know how they can get out of their situation. Like when I'm around people and they're, whether it's a restaurant, a hotel, an airport, a family function, and they're cussing and they're talking dirty and they're drinking, I don't sit there and go, oh, how could they do that? They're cussing and drinking and talking dirty. I don't do that. And here's why it doesn't freak me out because I was them. I was there. I was doing what they were doing. So instead of being judgmental like the Pharisees and going, how could you do that? You sinner, you're going to hell and doing all that. No, I have compassion on them because I was there. And this is what Paul is saying, man, I have compassion on these people. I used to be like them. I used to zealously seek God, but not according to knowledge. He goes, so I want them to be saved because I know what it's like to be addicted. I know what it's like to drink. I know what it's like to be lost. I know what it's like to cuss every other word. I know what it's like to be broken. Yes, Isaiah Saldivar, every other word was a terrible word. Yes, drinking, partying, doing a bunch of disgusting things. Why? Because I was lost. I didn't know my way, but now I have compassion on those people. So Paul says they have zeal but not according to knowledge, meaning they refuse to know anything about righteousness that God offers through Jesus. So zeal without knowledge is they have no desire. Zeal is passion, okay? Someone said, what does zeal mean? I'm glad you asked. And if you have questions, ask them and I'll try to answer them. But zeal means passion. I'm zealous. I want to serve God. I want to obey the laws. And the Pharisees were zealous, 
They were passionate about serving God. They were putting energy into fulfilling the law. So they had zeal, but they had zeal without knowledge because they had no desire to learn about Jesus, the Messiah. So Paul acknowledges their zeal. Zeal is the opposite of laziness. Okay, zeal gets you to do things. I, I read, I study, I pray, I fast. I spend, you know, sometimes four hours, six hours, eight hours preparing these live streams. Why? Because I'm zealous to teach the word of God. I'm zealous to see people get saved. I'm zealous to do deliverance. I'm zealous to see miracles. I'm zealous to preach to you guys and train you guys and see people delivered and saved. I have zeal for that. So it motivates me. I'm not lazy about it. I'm doing the work. I'm far from where I need to be, by the way. Don't, I don't want to paint myself into be something I'm not. There's so many areas of laziness in my life that I'm working on, but there's zeal in me. When you see me up there preaching, you're like, why are you sweating like that and preaching like that? That's the zeal of God, okay? But zeal with knowledge. I'm not just zealous without the Bible. As you can see tonight, we're preaching verse by verse. I have zeal with knowledge. And so they had zeal without knowledge. They didn't want to know about Jesus. They wanted to keep maintaining living by the law. So their zeal was actually bringing them in the wrong direction, okay? And you know, a lot of people are passionate about cessationism, and that means they don't believe in the gifts, spiritual gifts. So they're passionate about the gifts aren't for today, miracles aren't for today, and they're very passionate about it. So they have zeal, but they have zeal without knowledge because they're not doing what the Bible clearly says we should be doing. One commentator said this. I love this. Listen to this. You cannot make your own spirit fervent. If you try to do so, it'll be false zeal. The Holy Spirit alone can make people truly zealous. It is the fire from the altar of heaven that alone can burn in the heart and give us concern for the lost and make us do something about them. So this is what you need, a baptism of the Spirit of God. You need the fire of the Spirit and you should give yourself no rest or peace until you have it. That's what the commentator says. He goes, you can't make yourself zealous. That's artificial fake zeal. He says, you need the Holy Spirit fire. You need the passion of God, the fire shut up in your bones. And I can tell you right now, I've been zealous for 11 years. I'm more zealous now than I've ever been. And it's only because of the Holy Spirit. And I pray tonight the Holy Spirit zeal would be released and there would be the fire of God. Uh, Romans 10, 3 through 4. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have submitted to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, so Christ, point of this, Christ is the end of the law. The, the Jews had no idea that righteousness could be a gift that God gives. They knew that it was an attribute, but they resisted the idea that righteousness, right standing with God, if you're new, I'm trying to keep it simple, right standing with God was actually a gift that was given. They thought right standing was by the law. They didn't realize right standing was given as a gift by God. So human righteousness, we know means nothing. It's filthy rags. Um, the Jews observed the Holy Feast, the Sabbath, all the things, and they assumed they were good with God, not realizing righteousness came by Christ, not by the law. They didn't even know such thing existed as a gift of righteousness. Of course, they thought that their righteousness was enough. But Paul says, Christ was the end of the law. Can we get an amen to that? Christ was the end of the law. Write that in the comments. Write that if you're watching on the replay. If you're on Spotify, Google Play, come on my YouTube channel and comment down below. Christ was the end of the law. I love that. And if you don't, you don't know the Bible, then you won't appreciate that. But go read Leviticus, go read the Old Covenant, go read the Old Testament, and you're gonna be like, thank you, Lord, that Christ was the end of the law. Because there is some like in a real practical sense, crazy laws that you had to live by, but thank the Lord. Give the Lord a round of applause that Christ was the end. I love that that one statement. Paul says, Christ was the end of the law. 
Romans 10, 5 through 8. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. So once again, Paul goes back to the Old Testament to show his fellow Jews that they're wrong. They've gone wrong. He refers to Moses, the man whom through the Jews received the law. First Paul shows that the that first Paul shows the Jews what is Moses' definition to righteousness which is of the law. In short, Moses said that righteousness by the law is 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 accomplished by fulfilling the law. Sorry, tongue twisters here. Okay, so how you keep the law is by fulfilling the law. That's what you need to do. The person who keeps the law will live. That was the thought. The only snag is nobody can keep the law. Okay, so if you want to live, you got to keep the law. That's what Moses said. But the problem was no one can keep the law. So Jesus comes and righteousness of faith speaks in this way. This is what Paul is saying. We don't need to reach for heaven because in Christ, heaven has come to us. If we submit our lives to God, he will draw near to us. That's what Paul is saying, okay? I know it sounds complicated. It's not. Basically, our righteousness is now found in obeying Christ and putting our faith in him. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is Paul writing Romans 10. Now, people see this, and if you're new, you probably don't know this, but I'm very against the sinner's prayer. I have videos on this. The sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. Jesus did not lead anybody through the sinner's prayer. Peter did not lead anybody through the sinner's prayer. Paul did not lead anybody through the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer was invented, I don't know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. It's a new invention. It was not in scripture. So you might read this and say, there's the sinner's prayer. But you have to remember, this is not this. If you read this and you come up with the conclusion that Paul's telling us to have people come to an altar and repeat a prayer so they could be saved, you've missed it, okay? First of all, Romans 10, 9 is written to believers. It was written to the believers in Rome. This is not Paul saying, this is how you get people saved. This is Paul saying, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe that in your heart, that he's been raised from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Not that you are saved. It's not like a, a saving act right now. It's that if you live your life this way, you will be saved. And again, I have a whole video on the sinner's prayer and all the places we use in scripture like Revelation, like Romans 10, um, and breaking all that down. So I won't rehash that and dig that up again. But again, this is written to believers. Second, in those days, Caesar was considered Lord. They would have to pay homage to Caesar. And so what Paul is saying is, if you confess Jesus as Lord, they're going to kill you and persecute you like they were in Rome, but you will be saved when they kill you because you confess Jesus as Lord, not Caesar as Lord. So that's what Paul is saying. You will be saved. Not that you're saved right now, but when you stand before God, you'll be saved because you live this life where you've confessed Jesus as your Lord. You confess Jesus as your master. You believe that he's raised from the dead. You put your faith in him and that's how you're saved. And you will be saved when you stand before him. This is not like you get saved, once saved, always saved. Again, once saved, always saved is not a teaching found in scripture. Many people do confess him though as king, but not as savior and not as Lord. He is the Lord. He is the master. We need to confess that he is Lord. Philippians 2 says every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But it doesn't mean everyone will be saved. Again, let me say this. Philippians 2 says every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But it doesn't mean everyone will be saved. So it's not enough just to say he's Lord. You got to actually live this thing out. The idea of getting saved one time by praying a prayer and doing whatever you want for your whole life is not biblical. 
Okay, we're, we are being saved. We are being sanctified. We are working on our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't follow Jesus. We are following Jesus. Let me say that again. We don't follow Jesus. We are following Jesus. We're following him in his footsteps. Jesus said, come follow me. And in our following, it's an active thing happening in our life. It's not just one time and then you can do whatever you want and still go to heaven. That's not the, what Jesus taught or what the disciples taught. Romans 10, 10 through 13. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth of confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's what Paul is saying. If you call on the Lord, if you repent, if you do what Peter said in Acts 2, 38, you say, Lord, I, I need you to save me. I need a savior. I want to turn to you. I want to serve you. I want to worship you. What I did January 12, 2011, I said, God, if you're real and you reveal yourself, I'll do anything. I cried out to God and said, if you're real, I don't believe you are, but if you are, I'll do anything. And God came and I was saved. I was born again. In that moment, my nature was changed. He's not going to turn you down. Whoever calls on him and you're genuinely seeking him, God will save you, okay? That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying, come to the altar and repeat a prayer after the pastor, close your eyes. Paul is saying, if you call upon the Lord, you're going to be saved. It's this speaking out for God. And that's why he says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Why? Because if you confess him, confess with your mouth unto salvation, if you confess Jesus as your Lord, if you live your life confessing him, walking in, sharing your faith, sharing the gospel, confessing he's raised from the dead, then he says, you will be saved. He's not going to put you to shame because he says, if you're ashamed of me and you deny me, I'll deny you before my father. But if you confess me boldly, I'll confess you before my father. So it's not against what Jesus said. It goes in parallel with what Jesus says. Again, speaking of publicly, not a private faith, not a quiet faith, but stand boldly before the world saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is our master, boldly declaring that. We're not ashamed of it, as Paul said, but we boldly declare that. Romans 10, 14 through 15, we're almost done. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe if they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So here's the bottom line. God uses people to communicate his word to other people so they can be saved. Okay. So Paul's again, guys, if you're confused about what I said earlier, go watch my sinner's prayer video. I will make all sense for you. I just don't have time to go 20 minutes into the sinner's prayer. Okay. But here's five hows, five hows Paul presents. How will they call on him? Okay. So we need to participate in telling people about God because people are not going to automatically seek God. So how will they call on him? How will they believe in him if they've not heard? So we assume people are going to reject us, but they've never even heard. So how will they believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear without a preacher? So they need someone to preach to them. And you can be that preacher tonight. They need a preacher. How will they hear without a preacher? And how will the preacher, how will they, how will they have a preacher unless the preacher is sent? So unless you go out, okay, unless you're sent out, Unless God sends you or you go and you don't just sit around all day, how are they going to hear unless you're sent? And then he says, the last how is how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. Let me say that again. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel? It's so special when people go out and preach the gospel. There's something special about people that do that and that go out and preach the gospel. And I'm not saying that because I'm a preacher. Although, of course, I am a preacher. I've been preaching for 11 years. But to anyone that goes out and preaches, people need you to preach. 
People need the gospel. We need a thousand, hundred thousand more Isaiahs preaching the gospel. We need a hundred thousand more people preaching the gospel because people can't hear the message. They can't be saved unless they hear. And how will they hear it unless somebody goes? And how will they go unless somebody preaches? It's all this idea of we got to participate in what God is doing. Okay, here we go. Let's wrap this up with Romans, excuse me, 10, 16 through 21. And then we'll hang out in the chat. We'll pray all that good stuff. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I was made manifest to those who didn't ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrary and contrary people. So basically... This is what Paul is saying. Okay, again, breaking it down simply, the Jews had ample opportunity to hear the word of God, both by general revelation and by special revelation. They heard the word of God, people. Like, that's the bottom line. And they didn't accept God's invitation. And Paul uses Old Testament scripture to point out the sad reality that the Gentiles, who for a long time were ignorant of God, were more accepting of the invitation than the Jews, whom God pursued over and over and over again. So the idea was that while God sought after the Jews, they rejected him. And the Gentiles who weren't even looking for God found him and believed in him. So God says, I'm going to pursue the Jews over and over. And even though I'm pursuing them, they're rejecting me. But the Gentiles stumbled into this. They weren't even looking for me and they found me and they, they received me. So do not be the hard-hearted Jews that rejected God, but be like the Gentiles who said, We'll serve him. We'll take it or be like the Jews who received him. But don't be stubborn or hard hearted tonight. Let's pray tonight. Father, I pray tonight that in Jesus name, we would not be hard hearted, that we would not reject you. We would not reject what you're saying to us. We would not reject what you're doing, but there would be a confession in our lives that we would confess that you are the Lord of our life, that we would believe in our heart that you've been raised from the dead and that this would not just be a vain confession like the Pharisees, but Father, let it be a genuine biblical confession that Jesus is Lord. Some of you need to say that over your life. You need to write that in the comments. Jesus is Lord, like really, really Lord. Jesus, be the Lord of our life. We're asking you to be the Lord, be our master. Father, we repent tonight. We repent, God. We ask you for forgiveness. We want to know you. We want to serve you, and we want to obey you. We want to obey your son. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name, turn us from rebellion. We confess tonight with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We believe in our heart that you've raised from the dead. Father, tonight, I pray people would be born again. I pray people would repent. I pray people would turn to you in faith. I pray they would turn to you in fasting. I pray they would worship you and they would serve you like never before, God, tonight. And I pray, Lord, that there would be many, many, many people in this broadcast live replay spotify apple podcast doesn't matter born again in jesus name that your power is not limited to time or space but i pray lord that they would be born again i pray jesus that your healing power would be released right now father we pray the healing power of god to be released i pray bodies would be healed i pray bodies would be restored and renewed right now jesus we pray that you would begin to heal those in the in the broadcast that are sick in body Wherever you're sick in body, lay your hand there. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd bring healing right now. I can't do this, guys. It's not what I can do. I have nothing special. It's not by my will. It's not by my strength. It's by his strength. It's by his will. Father, right now, I pray, do the work. 
Heal bodies. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, heal bodies right now. Sickness, disease, bondage. Right now, I pray God healing, healing, healing in Jesus' mighty name. Restoration right now all through this broadcast, Father. I pray heal your people. I pray restore your people. I pray renew your people in Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' name, do what only you can do. Do what only you can do in Jesus' name. We ask you, Father, bring healing over families. If you have kids that need healing, kids that need breakthrough, that need salvation, intercede for them right now. Believe in them right now. Father, do what only you can do. Come on, right now in Jesus' name. We pray that you would restore. We pray that you would heal. We pray that you would deliver every unclean spirit. We command you up and out in Jesus' mighty name. You must leave them now according to the word of God. You have no place there. You do not belong inside of us. You must go now. Every unclean spirit and every unclean power come out in Jesus' name. Every foul spirit, go now in Jesus' mighty name. Every spirit of infirmity, go now in Jesus' mighty name. Father, I pray healing tonight. I pray deliverance tonight. I pray salvation tonight. Save our kids. Save our, our spouses, God. Save our cousins, our aunts, our uncles, our co-workers. Lord, let it be. It's your will that everyone repents. So we pray, God, tonight. Give us boldness to preach to them. Use us to reach them. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, use us. Here I am, God, send me. Come on, somebody say that right now. Here I am, God, send me. Send me to the highways. Send me to the byways. Use me mighty for your kingdom and your glory. Lord, release your power. Release your power. Heal those bodies, God, of our friends, our family, our coworkers. Do what only you can do. We serve you. We honor you, God. Help us to walk in holiness. Help us to walk this consecrated, pure life before you. In Jesus' name, here I am, God. Send me. Do what only you can do. Do what only you can do. Have your way, O oh God. Have your way, O oh God. Tonight, God, have your way in our lives, in our families, in Jesus' mighty name. Holy Spirit, have your way. In Jesus' mighty name, have your way. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Healing in Jesus' name. Breakthrough in Jesus' name. Salvation in Jesus' name. We will confess you before man. We will not be ashamed of you. We will believe in you in our heart. We will confess you with our mouth. And we will believe, God, that you saved, you delivered, you heal. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you are God. We are no longer going to try to control our circumstances, Father, but help us to realize that you are in control. You are in control. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God is moving, chat. God is moving. Thank you, Lord. I know, guys, we've been live for an hour and a half now. Um, if you want to give, you can do that. The links to give are down below. They are in the description. They are in the comments. I do want to do another mass deliverance and healing, maybe Friday. I want to do one soon on Zoom um, to do just some more ministry time, to spend more time with you guys praying, seeking God, praying for deliverance, praying for healing. Maybe I'll have some of you guys jump on and pray as well during the call. We did it last time and we filled up the call with a thousand people. So I believe we can do that again. Maybe on Friday, we'll see Lord willing. But if you want to give, you can, as we always say, don't dine and dash. We're supported by you guys without your guys' contributions. We couldn't do this. And again, I say that in a real sense. Without your guys' contributions, you couldn't do this. If you're listening on Spotify, Google, listen, we're live every Monday, Tuesday, and Friday. You can give on IsaiahSaldivar.com slash partner. If you're listening on audio, 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.